as whiskey has become more and more mainstream, you can't find what we call dusties, which are those gems of bottles that five or 10 years ago, you could go to a liquor store in the middle of nowhere and find really rare bottles that were old or bottles that were rare distributions that today there's no way you'll find it. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I'm joined by Billy, both of us back from an off-site retreat with the company in Kentucky, where we got into a lot of exploration of bourbon whiskey and certainly apt for this episode with our guest, Heather Wibbles, who we'll intro later on. But did you have a good time tasting bourbon in bourbon country, Billy? Yeah, I have to say I had very a very small, despite growing up and going to school in Virginia, just a small bourbon background. I think I, I went out of my way to try Pappy once, and that was about the extent of it. So I got my eyes open by the different styles and arrays of bourbon. What about you? Yeah, we yeah, we got to go to I've been drinking and collecting and exploring bourbon for a decent amount of several years now, but didn't know a ton about the process and hadn't been on site in any of these distilleries and had limited knowledge about all of the different levers that you could pull to make a bourbon distinct from any other. So that was cool to learn about. We got to visit Buffalo Trace Distillery, which is a pilgrimage for a lot of people who are fans of bourbon. We got to go to Angel's Envy, Castle and Key, which is a distillery. And then a couple of us went to Old Forester on the last day. So yeah, it was really cool. We got a diversity of experiences and they were really awesome tours, I thought, all the way around. Really educational and hands-on and everyone who we met was really great. Yeah, I went into it the opposite of you. Like You knew all the brands and you were learning about how it's made. I, I For other sommelier things, I had to learn about distilling and I got a whiskey book and I was all pumped on how it's made, but I didn't know as many of the famous brands or the years. So I also read that book on the history and it was cool to see a lot of these things tangibly. We went to a really a vintage bourbon shop and Brady came out with a box <laughs> and I got to taste them like 1970s a Maker's Mark. We had some 1988 old Taylors, I think it was. So that was cool to have everything mesh and uh, really open our eyes as we continue to explore and include bourbon and in some of our upcoming offerings way down the line. But yeah, we're, it was really cool. Yeah. And Heather, who's our guest today, is uh, Managing Director of Bourbon Women, which is an organization trying to put together programming and educational materials and social events and other kinds of things to get more women across the U.S. involved in whiskey culture and educate about bourbon. And I think I was really surprised at the number of both young people that we came across in our through our tours and exploration of these different distilleries, but also women. I believe we at Two of the four places we went to, we had women tour guides. So I definitely think that it's a space where there's growing diversity. It's not just an old man's drink anymore. We had young folks and and plenty of really knowledgeable ladies in the space as well. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, they were really knowledgeable ladies. Yeah, two of our the three tours I went on were women and they knew a ton. Fun facts, two women in bourbon facts that I've picked up in my little history. One was First, when they started bottling on bottling lines, they hired a lot of women only because apparently they were more dexterous and their smaller hands could work better in the bottling lines. So they're like, look, women have been in here for a while. But they also had been helping at the distilleries at home as everything was like home, 
homemade anyway. So I was like, it's funny that's mm-hmm. the first thing they mentioned is just the assembly line aspect. But and then later on, they go on to mention after World War II that women were drinking a lot of bourbon. It was just the, in everybody's mind, you were it was just so male dominated that they were basically like, we're going to advertise to the husbands. They'll introduce their wives to the good bourbon. Like women aren't going to be picking out the good bourbon <laughs> on their own. And I was like, that's so dumb. You're acknowledging they're drinking the product, but you're like, ah, we're going to leave it to the husbands to pick the good ones. So luckily that's transformed a lot over the years and <laughs> people like Heather were leading the charge. But I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then while we were off site, we were also planning for some of our upcoming whiskey collections of which we have one launching today more karazawa whiskey so japanese whiskey from the geisha series the geisha collections which we featured in the past but billy do you want to share a little bit about these two two sets of bottles that that we have coming to the platform yeah so we have the pearl geishas both sets so for those who aren't familiar with their past offerings Stella has a geisha series where basically there are two corresponding bottles and then their artwork of geisha women with different themes on them. And the bottles next to each other kind of correspond and the art combines. So they're typically, they're sold individually, but they're meant to be a set. So we've had the Ruby Geishas was our first. We've had the Sapphire Geishas. And now we've had, we're launching on Wednesday, March 8th, will be the Pearl Geishas and then the Golden Geishas. These are two older bottlings. The Ruby and the Sapphire were two of the more recent ones. The Pearl, the Golden was first. It wasn't the first ever, I don't believe. I can double check that. And then the Pearl came shortly after those. So it's cool. It's earlier releases that adds to some of the scarcity with mm-hmm. these. You guys trying to develop the fair market value was, was difficult. But what's cool for us from a Vint side and from an investor side, if you get a little bit of shares in each of them, they complement each other in the Vint portfolio. So as we go to eventually exit these whiskeys, not only will they potentially be appreciating as an individual bottle or set, but we could potentially exit all of the geishas or a number of the different geishas together and we could offer collectors the opportunity to to invest in a complete set so we're adding value both to our past potential value to our past collections as well as these future investments let's say yeah i think we had talked the last time when we discussed the ruby and sapphire geishas several months ago they have those gemstones or actually integrated in the packaging is that the same for the pearl and the gold bottlings is there like some kind of pearl element or gold element integrated with the packaging not quite as much i think you might be thinking more of the glenn farkless ones with the actual gems like in the bottles themselves oh uh, that's right that's right yeah. yeah the geisha packaging is pretty lean it has the pagoda series yeah the packaging has gotten more ornate over that's right. time but it hasn't it's not quite at that level yet okay regardless the japanese whiskey category is really cool for some of those some of those very reasons right the artwork that is often included on some of these Japanese whiskey, especially Kurosawa bottles. We had our 36 views of Mount Fuji bottle set, which has some beautiful artwork on the labels there. Obviously, the Pagoda series with the with the emeralds and the rubies and such. But this set is no different in that they sell, they tell a story, which I think is really meant they go together as a series. So we're excited for that offering. And yeah, it's definitely probably one that we'll continue to see a lot of demand for on the platform, given our last several whiskey offerings have sold out in less than an hour. Yeah. And, the, and to that point, we're trying to make sure everybody can get some access. We're launching both the Pearl and the Golden at the same time. So there should be shares available if you want them, if you get in there at, in a timely fashion. Yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll talk more about some of our exploration with whiskey and on our trip out to bourbon country, probably in future episodes as well. We certainly have no shortage of whiskey coming to the platform 
uh, over the coming weeks and months. Stay tuned to that and we'll continue to have more kind of whiskey and bourbon related content as we grow that side of our business. But want to pivot over to our interview for today. Like we mentioned, we have Heather Wibbles, who is the managing director for the Bourbon Women Association, which, as I said, is a consumer facing brand for education and developing different leagues in each state which put together programming that are specific to locales and communities of women across the U.S. She's also a author of recipe books and cocktail books related to whiskey and bourbon specifically. Her book, Bourbon is My Comfort Food, is a really awesome project. We thought that it features a lot of really creative cocktails that she's developed over time and put into a book, which I think if you're not someone who can jump right in drinking whiskey straight, or on the rocks. Cocktails are a really great way to get introduced to the space and kind of start playing with what you enjoy. And so Heather talks a lot about that today. And I thought her perspective on where the industry is going and what quote unquote kinds of people are drinking the beverage is was yeah, really insightful. And so I hope our audience enjoys her. Without further ado, here is Heather Wibbles. Hi, Heather. So glad you could join us today. So happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to get in this conversation about whiskey in America and bourbon specifically, and some of the ladies who are involved in it across the country. Why don't you give us a little background about how you got to where you're at right now with bourbon women? And yeah, maybe go back as far as you want or as recently. Like you said, I'm managing director of bourbon women, but I'm also a very long time member of bourbon women. The organization, it's a nonprofit. We actually started in 2011. We were founded by Peggy No Stevens and a group of women who were disappointed that the conversation about whiskey did not include women. Since then, we have, we reach thousands of women every month with our events, with our education, with our newsletter. And so we have really come from being very much, it was originally a Louisville type organization. It was based in Kentucky. A lot of the original members were there, but we found out very quickly that this is not a Louisville based obsession or fascination with bourbon, bourbon culture. And so it really became clear that women themselves love bourbon. We've always been drinking it. We're usually helping make it as well, just hasn't been talked about. So part of the role of bourbon women is really bringing women into the conversation about whiskey, into the conversation specifically about American whiskey, because bourbon women and bourbon has to be an American product. So we went from a small group in Louisville to now we have 16 branches across the United States from coast to coast, California, all the way to New York, Florida, both the Carolinas. So we have women across the country who are engaged engaged and very excited to sip whiskey, of course, because it's tasty, but also to learn about it. Our mission really is to educate women about bourbon and bourbon culture. And there's something magical that happens when you get a group of women together sipping whiskey in a room. And it is the most effortless connections you have ever made with additional people. The whiskey family in general, as I'm sure you all know, we thrive with a glass of whiskey in hand and some fun stories. And Bourbon Women is no different. We just love making connections and educating women and educating consumer side and working with sponsors and brands to educate them about what women enjoy and how to engage women as a segment of their market. Ah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Billy. Yeah. I was basically just going to ask, I mean, clearly bourbon has been a part of your life for a really long time, but it wasn't always your career path. So taking one little step back, how, you, how did you manage to finagle your way into such an 
awesome job being full time. Before, so originally, way, way back, I was a software quality assurance engineer and manager. And so I moved to massage therapy and did that for, I think I ended up doing that for about 19 years. And while I was in, I had moved from Nashville to Louisville. And I decided that since we were in Louisville, we probably should know a little bit about bourbon and bourbon culture, fell in love with it, found the group within a year or two of moving here and went to the very first event. And it had Fred Minnick. He was promoting his book, Whiskey Women. It had Peggy No Stevens, who she had her book there, but she was also the founder of, of Bourbon Women. Had Jimmy Russell and Jaretta Russell of Wild Turkey. And Joy Perini, who was the godmother, basically, of bourbon cocktails in Kentucky, Louisville specifically, but in basically Kentucky, she was there serving cocktails. And we fell in love. My best friend went with me and we <laughs> never stopped going to events. I won the Not Your Pink Drink Contest three years in a row, which is an annual event that we have. And they said, Heather, could you please not enter? Could you please <laughs> judge? I said, sure, no problem. <laughs> and from there, I got to doing cocktail content creation for Bourbon Women, was lucky enough to get the opportunity to write a book about bourbon cocktails, which is totally my jam. I love it. I talk about it all day because cocktails are really the gateway to bourbon, right? If you don't know you like bourbon, cocktails are an easy way to get people engaged in bourbon. And from there, you know, when I was doing all these events with bourbon women, I started to do content with them. I was nominated to serve on the board, was secretary, then was board chair. And then this position came up as managing director. And it was, it almost felt inevitable. It was something that I love doing. I love talking about. And it gives me the chance to be an advocate for two things I really care about, which is whiskey and whiskey education and women. And I think the two go together beautifully. What are the, maybe two or three main barriers for women getting into bourbon? And what are the maybe two or three things that you find that women really love and are attracted to once they experience bourbon? I think that there aren't, I would say that there's a hesitance of companies to truly engage with women. I think sometimes brands need to know that what women really want in whiskey, they want a good whiskey. It's not any different from what anyone wants in a whiskey, right? They want a whiskey that they can enjoy. They want a whiskey that they can share with their friends and their family. And they want to be respected for their palate, for their knowledge about bourbon. Sometimes if people have questions about bourbon and I'm standing there with my husband, they start to ask him questions at an event and he just takes his fingers and he points to me and he's, you need to talk to her. She's the one who knows about it. And so I think as far as barriers, I think those are disappearing quickly. There's definitely a move in the industry to recognize the competency and the leadership of women, not just as women, but as individuals. They're getting the recognition for the work they've always been doing and the leadership they've always provided. So I think for, for the whiskey industry, we're in a great place to continue moving forward. And honestly, when I talk to women, the thing that they... The thing that they love the best when they engage with whiskey is being able to be curious and being able to geek out just enough to talk about their own experience of the whiskey and how it has affected them. The whiskey community isn't just about drinking. It's about telling stories and connecting and you have that glass in your hand next to you while you're sipping and it's a beautiful thing. Does that answer your question, Brady? Yeah, I think so. I imagine that it's been difficult for companies to market to women, but I wouldn't really, I wouldn't know the specific barriers maybe for companies 
in their branding. And like you said, it's you, know, you market it the same way that you market it to anybody else. So I think that's a good point. And in terms of these dividing lines between beverages, especially in the alcohol space, between who drinks what, I think it's interesting kind of breaking those down. It is. And if you Google a glass of wom- a, w- a woman with a cocktail, it's very easy to find lots of pictures. It's not as easy to find a woman with a glass of whiskey if you're just Googling images like that. So part of it is representation in the imagery and the advertising that they use, the influencers that they work with, their messaging, because I think that being open to inviting women into this space is more than just putting it in a pretty bottle with a pretty label. I will tell you that women are just like other whiskey purchasers. We might buy a whiskey once because of the bottle or because of the marketing. We will not buy it a second time unless it is good. So I I think that the whiskey market and the bourbon market has a lot of assets that they could be using a little bit better simply because women biologically have 40% larger olfactory bulbs, right? So we have a little bit better biological equipment, as you might call it, in order to be sensitive to and to detect and communicate about different aromas or flavors. It doesn't mean that all women are master tasters. It doesn't mean that any person can't train up to be extraordinary in terms of their sensory evaluation of spirits. It just means women have a little edge biologically. Two-part question. So whiskey drinkers in general, regardless of gender, how what is the typical path of people getting going down the whiskey rabbit hole and then specifically for bourbon. And how does that vary in your experience from people going down the Scotch rabbit hole? Do they, does it diverge at some point and start at the same spot? Or are these like completely different folks? I think a lot of it depends on what you and your family grew up drinking, to be completely honest. In Kentucky, I was raised across the river. So basically from Kentucky, people drink whiskey, people drink bourbon all the time. Other parts of the country, the thing that your mom and dad might be drinking might be a scotch instead, might be an Irish whiskey, might depend on your heritage. I think the path into whiskey always starts with a beautiful dram that is shared with someone with a great experience. And whiskey is a story. There's no other way to think about it. It's a huge, huge industry. It is going great guns right now. But it's also at its basis about the stories that we tell. I, You all work with people who are investing and getting on the whiskey bandwagon. And it's always interesting to me for my friends and for the people I've talked to, it usually starts with they had a sip with someone who really loved it and shared with them what they loved about the spirit and a little bit of, of the history of the spirit. And if it's somebody with Scottish people in their background, maybe it started with Scotch. If they're Irish, my family's Irish, maybe it started with Irish whiskey. If you start once everybody gets over on this side of the pond, then it's probably American whiskey. But I think that the journey is very interesting because people find one that they like And they start to share that with other people and tell their story. And then they find another one that they like. And before you know it, you have 30, 40, 50, 60 bottles. And it's you have to build extra shelves. You have to put a bar in the house. You have to have a lot of glassware. But it's also really fun because it means you get to share it with other people. What's your favorite thing about American whiskey culture, about bourbon culture, that's maybe distinct from other food and beverage categories? Because in wine, we also have kind of the history and storytelling element as well. And so that's very much a crossover. Is there something that maybe you feel like is really distinct and unique about the category that you like? For American whiskey, I think that all of them share that fascination with the intersection of their spirit, with the history 
of their area, their country. I think that one of the reasons people gravitate towards whiskey, we know it's interesting because I spend a lot of time with people who started with bourbon whiskey. And bourbon and American whiskey is much more brash. It's much more flavor forward. A lot of times it's a much higher proof than perhaps a scotch or an Irish whiskey. Those are generally a little bit lower proof, 80, 85, 90 proof. A lot of people who drink whiskeys are going for 100 proof, bottled in bond. They're going for cask strength from the barrel, as pure as you can get it coming out from the barrel. And what's interesting to me is that people who start with scotch and move into bourbon, sometimes they have a little bit of a hard time doing that. People who start with bourbon and move into scotch It is a difficult transition, I think, because the flavors in scotch or Irish whiskey are a little bit more subdued because of the lower proof and because they're putting it in used cooperage. So it's in barrels that have been used before, whereas bourbon has to be first fill. It has to age in that first fill barrel, charred, uh, sorry, charred oak container, not barrel specifically. That's the, the laws around it. But for Scotch drinkers moving to bourbon, it's becoming more and more flavorful, I would imagine. But people who start with bourbon and try to move into Scotch and Irish whiskey, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, for them to become used to the subtlety of the flavors and the different flavor palettes that those particular whiskeys that are inherent to those kinds of whiskeys. Hmm. I didn't know it was any container that's charred American oak. Now you have me picturing like a treasure chest full of bourbon aging, like a box. You could, yeah. you, you could technically get a charred oak bucket that had never been used before. Pull, pour your moonshine, your distillate, not moonshine, your distillate, because it's legal. So you're going to got to call it distillate, not moonshine. Pour your new make or your distillate into the bucket. Let it age for a day, a week, a month, whatever. And pour it out and you have bourbon. Now it's not straight bourbon. You'd have to put an age statement on it. But technically it fits in the category of bourbon. I was also thinking since so many scotch whiskeys are aged in bourbon barrels, do you have anybody who tries to make that leap and just tend to be attracted to mainly the bourbon finished scotches? Because I've accidentally found myself doing that on the scotch side from like anything that's like heavily sherried or like even some that were aged in old wine barrels. I'm like, these are really good. I'm like, oh, do I just like it because I like wine? And it could, and absolutely. When I am trying to get people who are wine drinkers to drink bourbon, I go for wine finished bourbon, like secondary cast finishes that they would like. If I have somebody who really likes port but isn't into bourbon or American whiskeys, I look for port finishes. Same with same with scotch. If it's somebody who really loves a certain type of flavor profile, putting it into secondary finishing barrels, or with the case of scotch, original barrels it doesn't have to be a new barrel with scotch. So putting it into a barrel like that. I will try to steer them towards flavors that I already know they like because it makes it a little bit more approachable. Or I put it in a cocktail because the cocktail really makes it engaging for them to find the whiskey. And one of the things I love to do with whiskey with whiskey drinkers is talk to them about their own palate. Because in whiskey, your palate is your own. It's the same with cocktails. So when I was working on my book, The Bourbon is My Comfort Food book, when I was putting that together, I really wanted to make a way for people to train their own palates. And so in each of the chapters, I have a cocktail lab and the cocktail lab helps you determine what types of things you really enjoy with your bourbon. So one lab is different bitters with a base old fashioned. So you get to see what the orange bitters do or the chocolate bitters do or the orange and chocolate together. 
So one of the things that I really like to do that I love to tease whiskey drinkers about is they all have their own palate. And some of them are incredibly sensitive to very faint aromas and flavors. And it makes them very well qualified to evaluate and sip on cocktails, but they think they don't like cocktails because they can't taste the bourbon or the whiskey. But these are people who may say, this smells like my aunt, my Nana's favorite gardenia lotion that she only wore in the summer at a very special occasion. And they will have a very specific aroma experience or flavor experience. If you can pick gardenia out of a general floral note, you can really rock and roll with cocktails. You know what you like. You know what works for you. It's very easy to make that jump from being a great, uh, being a discerning and very aware whiskey drinker to someone who loves cocktails and therefore can make cocktails to convert other people into being whiskey drinkers. That's really fascinating. I think that for me, it's been difficult to sometimes discern the flavors and separate out the flavors when I'm drinking bourbon tend to be like maybe a few really main like primary aromatics and notes on the palate. And so what's like the 101 guide that you give people for beginning to identify some of those primary notes and then move into what are some of the complexities beneath the oak and the caramel and the butterscotch and the brown sugar and this kind of thing? That's a really great question. And what I do and what I, when I coach people, when I talk to them about doing this and when I'm teaching classes, don't just think, don't just I have in my head this list of things that are orange flavored, right? An orange peel, fresh orange zest, candied orange, mandarin orange, tangerine, all these things that are citrusy orangey. So when I get orange, I think about which one of those things it reminds me of. So the way to develop yourself in terms of parsing out specific aromas Your category might be, it smells sweet. Does it smell like butterscotch? Does it smell like caramel? Does it smell like creme brulee? Does it smell like sugar glaze? And so if you break out, it it could smell like brown butter, right? So if you think about the general category and develop in your head or on a piece of paper, I actually have flavor wheels on my phone and lists on my phone. So if I detect something nutty, I can go through walnut, pecan hazelnut, macadamia nut. And I can think about how those different things smell. And if I'm not very comfortable with those scents or flavors, I just get some and put it next to me while I'm nosing. So if I'm doing nosing for something and I want to work with a nutty flavor for a base cocktail, I might get out little bowls with pecans, almonds, walnuts, all different kinds of nuts that I have at home and smell them and the whiskey alternately and see which ones match up with what I am experiencing. As a whiskey drinker, to develop that ability, it takes practice, which, oh no, requires more sipping and smelling of whiskey, which is never a bad thing, right? When done responsibly. But it, re- but mainly what it requires is experimentation and building a sensory library in your head. Hmm. And there are some flavors that I never used to get that now I get. I never used to get dill in anything. And there was a whiskey writer and I was talking to him about it. He said, get this whiskey and then go to your spice cabinet, get your dill out, smell the dill and then smell the whiskey. And now I can smell the dill. I can get the herbal and the mint. So some of it is just someone telling you this whiskey has X, Y, Z in it. And you associating that particular aroma in a bourbon with the particular aroma in its 
most basic form, the food or the herb or the spice. I smelled pickle juice to get my dill skills up a little bit, but uh, dill skills. Can you share a few examples of whiskeys that have really distinct profiles? Maybe like maybe two or three that are like, ah, this is very citrus for this is very caramel and maybe else. I honestly, I hate to do that because I don't really always want to direct people to Mm. a specific whiskey's the is at a tasting with Pamela Heilman, who was the master distiller at Michter's for a long time. I don't know if you all ever met her. She and Andrea Wilson, Andrea is the Michter's master of maturation. So she does everything with the barrel, with the blending. That's her wheelhouse. And Pam was the master distiller. And she said that when she came to work at Michter's and when she first got into bourbon, just in general, she never really got the same flavor notes as anyone else. But it doesn't mean that she was wrong. It just meant that Mm. she was sensitive to different things. So when I'm talking about a bourbon that has, for example, banana in it, Old Forester 86. If I'm thinking, and I tend to use Old Forester a lot at home because I use it for cocktails. It's very reasonable in terms of being able to create great cocktails with it. If I'm thinking about cherry notes, probably Old Forester 1920. Brash, really strong, punch you in the face flavors, but it's got that nice dried cherry flavor to it. Not like a Luxardo, but more like a dried cherry flavor. And I will say that I, I was doing a dinner party at home and we were testing out what well, at the party, I was having a flight of Black Manhattans made. Are you all familiar with the Black Manhattan cocktail? No. So You'll want to try it. It's super, super delicious. So a typical Manhattan is sweet vermouth, bitters, and whiskey, rye or bourbon. Depends on what part of the country you're in. In this case, I was doing a black Manhattan, which had an Amari in it. So each black Manhattan would have a different Amari, and I chose three different Amari. To do that, I had to have the same base spirit because this was a sensory exploration of how Amari pulled different flavors out of the base spirit, the whiskey. And if this is too geeky, you guys, just reel me in because I can keep going on this. So what I did was I had these, I went out and I bought, I think, five or six bottles of rye whiskey that were mid-price point. And I lined them all up with the ones I already had. So I had about nine bottles of rye whiskey and I tasted each of the rye and I nosed all of them. And then I smelled them together with the Amari. So for every single Amaro that I had a little glass, and if you smell two things together, if you bring them up and they smell good together, it's pretty certain that they're going to play well together in a cocktail. Mm. So I went through all of these whiskeys and one of them, the Wild Turkey 101 Rye, was grassy and hay. And I'd never gotten that note from that before. And one of the new riff rise, dill, 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 dill. So you have that initial flavor note that had that on the nose or in the actual tasting of it. But then if you sit with it for a while, you can get, I call it, I'm a visual learner, so I call it looking underneath. So you can look under those initial or overwhelming flavors and find the things that are building into that overall whiskey flavor. I'm totally geeking out for you guys. I hope your audience doesn't mind this kind of geeky flavor and nosing talk. Because with wine people, people who love wine, they do the same thing. It's just a different flavor palette. It's just a different flavor wheel. Yeah, I was actually going to say maybe take it in one step. I I don't know if this is nerdier, but uh, can you just give us a one-on-one on rye whiskey, how it's made and just how it differs from bourbon? Because I think some people don't understand how it gets that different kind of citrusy or aromatic profile that bourbon doesn't? Oh, sure. So 
To further complicate things, anything that's suburban has to be at least 51% corn by mash bill. Most of the rest of the regulations about what makes a rye whiskey, which has to be at least 51% rye in the mash bill. And so the recipes for both of them are similar in many cases, but rye has to be at least 51% corn, or sorry, 51% rye, and bourbon has to be at least 51% corn. And that's really the basic difference. They all have very specific restrictions in terms of what barrel privet goes into the barrel at, what how high you can distill it in terms of the total, the highest proof it can come off the still at, how many years it needs to be in the barrel to be called a straight rye whiskey or a Kentucky straight rye whiskey. All of those regulations are really the same between bourbon and corn, bourbon and rye. The difference is the majority of the grain. Now, when you think about rye whiskey, when you think about bread and you have rye bread, how does rye bread different from regular white bread or wheat bread? Like, how would you all describe the difference in flavor between those? Rustic, more grainy, gluten-free. So, I'm not a fan. Makes me sick. If you smell, but if you smell rye bread. <laughs> Versus smelling wheat bread or yeah. regular bread. Because I know you've smelled bread before. Yeah. it's Is it more, what's the word, like more vegetal and aromatic mm-hmm. that way? Earthy, versus, kind of. Yeah. Like yeah. versus more, maybe like, I guess I would say. Yeah. Exactly. So to further complicate matters, bourbons come in a classic mash bill, a high rye mash bill, which has a lot of rye in it, or a weeded mash bill. And so with bourbons, usually people are choosing between wheat and rye as a secondary grain, and then a little bit of malted barley to help with the enzymes processing and making making the good stuff when the yeast is at work. When you think about the flavor and the taste and the smell of rye bread, it is a little bit herbal, it is a little bit vegetal, and that transfers over into the distillate. And once it's aged, even though it gets rounded out with flavors from the barrel, the vanilla, some of the caramel, those sweet flavors, it also pumps up things though people will often say rye tastes spicy to them. And sometimes they're talking about it's spicy in terms of like black pepper, like pepper spice. Sometimes they're talking about heat in terms of the mouthfeel. Because the other interesting thing, and I'm sure this is the same with wine, is the mouthfeel for these different whiskeys will be completely different between bourbon and rye, partially because of the different types of grains that go into it. I'm assuming the different grapes and wines hit in different places on the palate as well. Would you all agree? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Or just that or the winemaking style. Yeah, definitely dictates. So. We'll change that. Yeah. So rye in general are considered more spicy. Sometimes that means more baking spice or more aggressive spices like more clove, more cardamom. Sometimes that means like black pepper spice. But a lot of time when a rye whiskey is just 51% rye, meaning just barely a rye whiskey, it's very close in flavor profile to a bourbon. And so it's really fun to trick whiskey drinkers and give them a flight of rye whiskeys and don't tell them which is rye and which is bourbon and do one bourbon, one barely rye rye whiskey, and then a couple of very traditional rye whiskeys and see if they can pick out which one's the bourbon and which Mm. one's the barely rye rye. And it's just, it's always a fun experiment to do with people when you do something blind like that, because it opens up their minds, I think, and their senses to how different things are, even when they're made exactly in the same way. Even when everything else is the same, except for the barrel and maybe the mash bill, 
they can be wildly different in terms of flavor. I was working through Lou Bryson's Whiskey Masterclass book a little while back, and he was talking about like ancient grains or historical grains. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are? That was really cool. I have not gone all the way through that book either. So I can't speak intelligently on that. I do know that sometimes people will put oat in their whiskeys. Sometimes I was in Canada and I had a, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing this right, but triticale. I had a spirit that was made with triticale green. Rye and barley and wheat and corn are very common here. And the whiskey that came over from Europe originally would have been rye whiskey, really, because Europe's climate at that point was much better suited to rye than corn. You move over here, everybody who comes over from Europe brings their stills with them, right? Kentucky tends to have the exact same limestone water, a lot of the same geographical features as Ireland and Scotland. So they come here, it looks familiar, they brought their stills, but corn grows better than rye. So that is why the corn really became a very predominant flavor and a predominant use of grains for distillation because we had so much of it. And it's easier to carry a jug of distillate than 15 bushes of corn on the back of a horse. Yeah, from what I gathered, it was like, and it's interesting now, it's like the industry kind of migrated just like they did for grapes in a lot of different regions to what was easier to produce, more hardy could produce larger yields and was basically easier to farm. And I guess originally they had these different grains and they just had whatever you were like you were saying they brought with them or they just had locally. And these different grains offered different characters to the whiskeys. So now they're trying to find some of these things that were left over, replant and try to focus more on like this craft side rather than just purely volume. And apparently that and mixing in old school yeasts or different yeasts are providing like really cool profiles. So I thought it was yeah. And when you think about like the heirloom, I, I think you're talking about heirloom grains. Yeah, yeah, right? heirloom. That's heirloom. The okay. Word. Yeah. You said ancient grains, and I'm like, I don't no, know that's, ancient, but heirloom that's for grains. like, I guess, yeah. digestive health. <laughs> yeah. So the heirloom <laughs> grains, yeah. So there's a huge movement towards recovering those grains for reasons. The climate's changing. And so we need to have as many different variations of grain as we possibly can because we're going to keep making spirits, right? So we need to have many variations of the rye rye grain and the corn. And one of the things that people do now is they're working with farmers who are going to cultivate and protect and really nurture those grains. And it's going to change over time because as climate changes where something might grow now, maybe in 50 years, it's not going to grow as well. But there are companies like Whiskey Sisters out in Colorado. They help work with farms who are growing some of these heirloom type grains and getting those to small craft distilleries or even like midsize or larger craft distilleries as a way of protecting that sort of biological inheritance of grains and seeing what those do with this. Because the grain that you use, the type of grain um, completely changes the type of corn, the type of uh, rye you use that can completely change the flavor, the mouthfeel and the profile and it makes the aging process even more complex because those are grains that we don't have as much history with. So we don't have as many data points as to how it's going to react in the barrel. What's going to change in the barrel with this particular fillet made from this particular grain? Yeah, we might have talked the, the last time we chatted on our intro call about High Wire Distillery in South Carolina, but they have a really robust program where they're doing Jimmy Red Corn and Ruzi Rye, which is like a field rye, I guess that's common in the Southeast. And so their rye whiskey is this a bruisey 
whiskey. And so I like that they highlight these, what are we saying, ancient grains? <laughs> um, heirloom. I these would say heirloom. heirloom. Yeah, these heirloom, heirloom yeah. varieties. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And really something like that really drew me into whiskey, general American whiskey generally, and then eventually on to bourbon. We, well, I want to pivot just a little bit. And there's kind of these categories, especially because of maybe like the disjointed distribution system with some of these spirits in the U.S., where folks find themselves being hunters or collectors or investors. Do you label yourself as any one of those three? <laughs> I would say I'm a drinker. I don't believe in okay. unopened bottles. I If I find something I really like and I want to save it for a later, I may not be a good fit for most of your company's membership. <laughs> I believe that whiskey is made to be shared. And it may be that I sit on that bottle for a couple of years because when it's once it's bottled, the whiskey's not going to go bad. It's high enough mm-hmm. proof. It doesn't age like wine does in the bottle. Once it's put in the bottle, it's going to stay at that state. But I have friends who are collectors. They love the hunt. They love the hunt. As you know, as we've gotten more and more popular, as whiskey has become more and more mainstream, you can't find what we call dusties, which are those gems of bottles that five or 10 years ago, you could go to a liquor store in the middle of nowhere and find really rare bottles that were old or bottles that were rare distributions that today, there's no way you'll find it. And so I think the hunt's gotten more and more difficult uh, in terms of trying to find something that you can actually, it's possible, you can still do it. But finding those rare gems is more and more difficult because so many people are hunting dusties, as we say. Do you have dusty in wine culture? Do you call yeah, them dusties? The problem with wine is it needs to be properly stored. So it's like, you could find them if they're in the back of somebody's like cellar somewhere. But like, I've tried this, I've tried going to like, convenience stores and I've seen bottles I'm like wow that's actually an interesting bottle like how is it here and then you open it, it tastes horrible because it's been stored either on a top shelf or yeah upright in for the years sun. Yeah. yeah but can you share a little bit more of the slang with us because I remember you were telling us about taters before too and yes. I just want to make sure we got that dusties are the hunt is going to look for bottles that are rare either because they are allocated or because they're no longer available generally and has them at an estate sale. Somebody has them at an older liquor store in the middle of nowhere. So you have dusties. You also have unicorns. And those are things that are extremely hard to find. And unicorns is used in many different industries. But in the bourbon industry, a unicorn would be a pappy. The Buffalo Trace Antique Collection set, One of the some of the stags can be considered a unicorns. So anything that's really hard to find. And in our case in Kentucky, Blantons are notoriously hard to find. You wouldn't think since it's made here, it would be difficult to find. Everyone wants it. Everyone comes here to find it and you can never find it. And then there's also a term that's tater. And sometimes people will be referred to as taters if they're new to bourbon collecting and bourbon tasting. And they're basically just mimicking what other people tell them that they should like. So taters are really people who get involved in the hype, but may not be, uh, may need some education, I would say, and developing their own palate and appreciating whiskey for what it is, which is a spirit that's meant to be enjoyed and shared with other people. What's our word for tater in wine, Billy? Can you think of one? Like so, someone who just drinks maybe grocery store stuff that's uh, like, is that would be the equivalent, right? I don't think it's just a grocery store. I would think it was somebody who just well, got that's not what it. That's not what it is in whiskey, but I'm saying that would probably be the equivalent of I like big, bold Napa Red. No, I have a few friends who are like, I have another friend who's a sommelier and he has a couple buddies who he's like, get this one Beaujolais producer from this one year or <laughs> something. And all they'll do is go around and tell everybody like, oh, I only drink Beaujolais and like Loire Shannon. 
and it's but they don't know anything else but i don't know a name for that but yeah, yeah. No, I, they, there's definitely the same where people yeah. drop a couple of specifics and they're like ah i know what i'm talking about yeah. and one of the things that's fun about uh bourbon women if i take it back there is we know what it's like to be new to the hunt, if you will, or new to bourbon. And so it is really fun to be with people with other bourbon women. And the conversation is less about what's the most expensive thing that you had to drink. And it's more about what you liked, maybe sneaky bourbons that really snuck up on you that you didn't realize you were going to turn out to be much better than you thought. Um, and we'd love to talk about just regional differences in bourbon. It's very much sharing the experience with other people, with other women. And it's just so much fun in a room full of women to walk by tables and they have their Glencairn up, up next to, and I don't have a Glencairn with me, which is a travesty, but I've got a glass of water over here, but they'll bring it up to their nose and they'll say, maybe nutmeg, are you getting nutmeg? It's not making me think of eggnog. And somebody else will say, yeah, but like cardamom, maybe you're getting cardamom. And then they'll start talking about the foods that they make or bake or eat that go with those flavors. And so you have this table full of sense memory and they're all connecting and it, it's just a magical thing. I think that's one of the reasons people are so enthusiastic about bourbon is because the experience of it is individual and no one can tell you that what you love is wrong. They may not agree, but really they can't tell you that, that you're wrong because your palate is your own. So in that kind of aspect, I think it's a fun way to think about flavors and sense experiences and sharing them with other people. Kind of on that note, I wanted to dive into your book a little bit. And you talked a little bit about how it's broken up and maybe the different sections. What, but I wanted to know, and I'm not familiar with all the publishing that's been done on bourbon cocktails, but how did the American whiskey world receive a cocktail book specifically utilizing bourbon in cocktails versus, I, I think I have this conception that culturally, the expectation would be, oh, you drink it neat. So was it sacrilege when your book came out or how well, was it received? It's funny. When I was putting together the press kit for the book and talking with my publicist, I said, now this is going to be controversial. And she said, why? And I said, because... You have a dreamsicle in the yeah. cup behind you. That's on the cover. Yeah. yeah see, can right. you see it? <laughs> can you see it? Yeah. But it... One of the things that I'm really working for personally and that I wanted to do with the book was to broaden the definition of what is a whiskey drinker. Because you're right. When someone calls themselves a whiskey drinker, you think they drink it neat or on the rocks. You're not thinking that they are drinking it in cocktails. And whiskey has a diversity problem. We need to be approachable to people who don't drink whiskey neat or on the rocks, to people who just want to have it in a cocktail. Because guess what? Our grandparents probably didn't drink it on the rocks or neat. They were probably sipping it with their lemonade and their ginger ale. And so I think when we think about what makes a whiskey drinker and how to keep whiskey viable long-term, everybody's thinking about when's there going to be a whiskey bust. But the thing is, if we keep building whiskey education and keep getting more people into the whiskey community, the bust is never going to happen. So for me, it is controversial because I talk with people in whiskey groups and bourbon societies, and they are very reluctant to admit that whiskey cocktails can be a compelling thing because they say that they can't find the whiskey in the drink. And a lot of what I do when I work with people who are already into whiskey is pitch it to them this way. If you know how to make a great whiskey cocktail, you can convince all of your friends and family to drink with you. 
If you want more people to share your passion for whiskey and stop complaining about how many bottles you have on the shelf behind you, how many you have invested, you know, how many you've collected, if you can get them engaged in it as a flavor that they enjoy in a whiskey cocktail, your battle's half done right there. Because if they know it's going to be good in a cocktail, if you make it, they're they're not going to give you, they're not going to bug you because of the number of bottles that you have. It is, honestly, it is a little bit controversial. And when I talk to people, I say, if I call myself a gin drinker, do you think I'm drinking flights of gin? No, you think (laughs) I'm drinking gin and tonics or martinis. What are uh, your your signature cocktails? What would you say of the Mount Rushmore of Heather Wibble's cocktails? You know what? I love a great black Manhattan. I'm obsessed with them because Amari are so different brand by brand that it is an enormous challenge to match that Amaro with a very good whiskey based on the flavor profiles of both. It's like an impossible challenge. You're never going to find the match, but you're going to find some really good ones on the journey. And then I love a great Sazerac. I love the taste of absinthe and licorice. And Mm. a lot of people don't enjoy that. I love the cooling effect that absinthe and herb saint, those things with licorice, I love that effect on the mouth. One of the things that I think whiskey drinkers, when they start drinking whiskey, aren't always very aware of is the mouthfeel of something. So where it's hitting in the palate, is it the sides? Is it the back of the tongue? Is it the front of the mouth? Is it the front of the palate? That is something that to me is extremely fascinating. And it's something that's very easy to teach people to be aware of. And if I do it with a Sazerac, they can feel where the cooling hits on their tongue. They can feel specifically that cooling mechanism. So you can really educate about mouthfeel when you're working with something like absinthe or something with clove in it, because clove, something like a cocktail with allspice dram, allspice has a little bit of clove and allspice in it. The allspice dram that I'm talking about at St. Elizabeth, it has a numbing feel in the mouth. And to me, just communicating a flavor experience with someone, that is the highest compliment is someone to say, it's for somebody to take a sip and say, wow, I would not have thought of those flavors going together. So the Black Manhattan and the Sazerac are my favorite. And there's a, a cocktail in the book called the Dark Quarter, which is a combination of the two. And about a year after I sent in the manu- the final manuscript, I was playing around with cocktails for my channels because I also I have a website called Cocktail Contessa. So it's cocktailcontessa.com. And I was playing around with content for that. And I thought, I never put that on the website. I need to test it. I think I can make it better. That recipe was perfect the way it was. I played with it for a couple of days. I could not get it any better. And so to me, that kind of combination of two my two favorite, a Black Manhattan and a Sazerac, that's one of my favorite cocktails ever. Hmm. First, let me say I'm a stickler. When I learn the proper way to say something in a language, I say it. So I really appreciate you saying Amari for the plural of Amaro rather than just Amaros. Sure. It's just a small thing. Pretty cool. I was also going to say there, I think that's the mouthfeel is something people don't think about as much in terms of the yeast and stuff too. There are certain yeasts in wine especially in sherry that actually eat the glycerol or they produce lower amounts of glycerol. I think people need to like think about a little bit more. There's so much more that goes into making how that feels and just the char and just what the grain is at the beginning. So that's pretty cool. Have you heard of geosmin? It's like a chemical compound. Yes. What is the flavor that it is? It's It's like the smell of beets. Yeah. It also with like wet asphalt and concrete. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. 
cool. I'm happy somebody else knows because I keep going around and I'm like, guys, smell this beat. It's actually you smelling Geosmin. Yes. <laughs> so I did a Barbara Women had a class with Monica Wolf and Ashley Barnes, and they together are the spirits group. And Ashley is one of the best blenders in the company, in the country. And she and Monica are brains behind some of the really cool craft revival that's going on with these smaller brands. And Ashley gave a class on nosing for faults. And one of the things that we smelled, she talked about Geomsen, which I cannot pronounce, but that's what we talked about. And she had a tiny little piece of beet in there. And then she also was talking about one of the flavors, one of the chemicals that's responsible for the buttery flavor. And she had actually gone into opening up popcorn bags, like a microwave popcorn, and scraping that butter out because it was a perfect representation of that smell, of that very buttery smell that you get with some things. So I think with the geeky stuff with smells and flavors and eighty, like 80 or 90% of your sense of taste is from your nose, right? So if you hold your nose and sip something, you're not going to get any flavor from it. And I think one of the reasons that whiskey drinkers geek out so much about the science is because it's so fascinating to drill down. We don't really know what does what. We don't really know exactly how those flavors get in there and how those combinations of particles make a specific flavor or a specific sense experience that someone else can say, that smells like smoked cinnamon. How does that happen? We don't even really understand the science behind it. We'd love to. We can make lots of money, but we don't. That's awesome. I to wrap this up here. Do you have a second edition of your book coming and where do we find it? Obviously Amazon, but is there a better place to buy? Obviously your local independent booksellers are always the best place to buy. Any bookseller is going to be able to order it for you. As long as you're willing mm-hmm. to wait a week or so to get it, it's going to, it's going to come and meet you wherever you are. Nice. Yes, it's available on Amazon. I can, I am I have many ideas for second, third, fourth, and fifth books, but I have a limited number of hours in the day. But what I will say about the book is if you have people in your life that are curious about bourbon and learning a little bit more about bourbon, or if you have somebody who's a bourbon lover that you just, you want them to be able to talk more people into loving bourbon, the book is a great gift and it's a great resource. I tell people it's my biggest joy when they have a page in my book and there's food stains on it and there's syrup, it's sticky. If there's alcohol or water stains on it, that tells me that they're using the book, which is how it was intended. It is a beautiful book. I did the photography for it, but it is also a book that is designed to be used as a workbook to develop and discover your own palate. And it's all of this came about because of bourbon women. And I just have to go back to bourbon women one more time, which my whole path of getting into bourbon was through bourbon women. It was through people who love to sit bourbon together and they saw that I had a passion for cocktails and wanted to create it. And I was thinking about this last night. If you had told me five years ago, I would be where I am now. I would have just laughed uproariously that this <laughs> is where I am, but I love it. I'm where I'm supposed gonna- to be. Awesome. Yeah. Now I was going to circle back on Bourbon Women too. What do you guys have planned for 2023? Are there like regular tastings or does each chapter do their own thing? What what are you looking forward to this year? We have, so we are truly a national organization. We have our crown jewel of all of our events, which is our Bourbon Women's Symposium. It's a national conference. It's four days long. We start Thursday with bourbon nerd experiences. We have excursions, private dinners, tastings, workshops. I think we had 17 different workshops last year, and that didn't even include keynotes. But we bring in lead speakers in the industry 
who know a lot about bourbon, but also we want our members who come to be able to experience something different. So we ask for people who are coming and giving workshops to do something unique, to do something that they don't normally give to the public. So last year, for example, we had someone come in from Independence Dave who talked all about the barrel. And it was basically the industry program that he usually does at industry conferences. We had the Beam Suntory sensory team come in and give the training that they give their own sensory team when they have a new member. So we have these experiences over a four-day period in August. It's August 24th through 27th. And that's our crown jewel of the whole year. But throughout the year, we'll have between 35 and 40 different events all across the U.S., some virtual, some national. We just have a lot of content and possible events for anyone based on where they live. If they're close to a chapter, they're going to have probably three to four events per year that they can go to in person, not counting the virtual and all the other things that we offer for the memberships. And to get to Bourbon Women, you go to bourbonwomen.org. So if you have listeners who are women or who have a woman who is passionate about spirits in their life, it is a perfect gift for them. Wow. Those sound like such right. awesome events, but also thoughtful events too. Like I, I want to incorporate those in anything I ever do. I love the sensory yeah. to the barrel. That's what we found was a lot of people do flights with bourbon. They'll come in and give you a flight with their whiskey, but not as many people develop something that ties in an experience or something that you do that's hands-on to whiskey. And when you do that, whiskey education just sinks with them and it's ingrained in their mind. And so we're so much about education and getting more people involved in the whiskey community. Doing those kind of experiences is a no-brainer for us. We're always looking for that kind of special experience and that kind of connection. That's great. Yeah, th- thanks so much. It sounds like it's a great organization. I'll definitely be telling people about it. The closest one to us here in Maryland, you said, is, I guess, New York chapter. Is that right? We have a New York chapter. We have a D.C. chapter. I don't know how close you are to D.C. That might be closer. We have North Carolina, South Carolina. We have Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. We have Chicago. We have Missouri. We have Tennessee. We have an Atlanta chapter. I'm looking at the map on my head, on my, in my mind, Colorado, California, Florida. And I know I've forgotten at least one or two. But we're, we literally are across the U.S., but we also have national events as well that you can join virtually, or we had people fly in. We had a Buffalo Trace antique collection full flight two weeks ago on a Saturday. Never been able to do a full flight of Buffalo Trace antique collection ever. It was one of the best events we've ever had. Had people drive in from Ohio, Indiana, (laughs) Illinois, Tennessee to come in and do it. The special events that we offer, sometimes people do drive in from, I have family in Chicago. So if they have a cool event, I'm going to go up there and stay with my brother and hang out with the Chicago crew. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely put information for how people can find both Bourbon Women and your in the show notes so people can find that down below. And we yeah, we really appreciate you spending time with us, Heather. Oh, this has been fabulous to talk to you all. I hope I didn't geek out too much over whiskey, <laughs> but I, I'm passionate about it. I love talking about it. And I think what you guys are doing as a business model, too, is really interesting, is having whiskey collections that people invest in. That's a really fascinating idea. To someone who mostly drinks whiskey, it's not something that I would do myself right now. But knowing the kinds of changes that are going to happen in the whiskey industry in the next 10 years, this is the time to get in on something like that. Because the smaller companies are getting bought up by bigger companies, little companies that are eventually going to be gems in another lineup. 
if you all can get in now, it's going to be mm-hmm. nice. Thanks a lot, Heather. Thanks for the shout out. Yeah. Um, You're welcome. We'll talk to you again soon, hopefully not too long. And we'll be out in Kentucky at the end of February. So I'm not actually not oh, sure when. Are you coming uh, for the Bourbon Classic? No, we'll be there as a team. Twice a year we get together as a team because we're all remote. And we're doing it this year in Cincinnati and Louisville. Awesome. Give me a shout out when you're here if you need a cocktail. Awesome. Thanks, Heather. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you all. Bye-bye. All right. That was our interview with Heather Wibbles. I hope you all learned a little bit about bourbon in general, women in bourbon, and are excited for our Karazawa collection coming out, launching today, March 8th, and then followed quickly by our DRC collection, which is launching later in the week, which we did not tease at the beginning of this episode. So if you're seeing now, there's a DRC 14, 2014 assortment pack launching later this week as well. So stay tuned and make sure you hop on the platform early to get some shares. We'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.